Hey there, I'm so excited to tell you about Radiotopia's newest show, The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. Kenji and Deb are two of the best home cooks alive. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Food Lab and The Walk, and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen. Two of my go-tos to make sure I'm getting the perfect recipe for everything from meatballs to muffins. They're pros who obsess over techniques and essential ingredients, so you learn everything you need to create your perfect recipe. You can finally be excited to eat what you make, and maybe even impress your friends and family. Help us welcome the newest show to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb on your favorite podcast platform starting February 26th. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to This Day in Esoteric Political History from Radiotopia. My name is Jody Avergan. This day, July 14th, 1877, the beginnings of the Great Railroad Strike of 1877. Railroad workers in Martinsburg, West Virginia, responded to a 10% pay cut by declaring that no trains would leave Martinsburg until pay was restored. They gathered at the rail yard to protest and they were joined by local townspeople in solidarity as well. By the end of July, this small strike had spread throughout the country into the Midwest, Chicago, Ohio, into the Northeast, cities like Albany and Buffalo and Newark. 100,000 workers participated in the Great Railroad Strike of 1877, at the height of which more than half the freight on the country's tracks had come to a halt. And this is in many ways obviously a story of the rise of the rail industry and connectivity in this country, but this is also what we could call the first strike in a mass strike era, something that would happen a lot um, in this era and doesn't seem to happen that much these days. So lots to discuss um, around what is also known as the Great Upheaval of 1877. Here, as always, are Nicole Hammer of Columbia and Kelly Carter-Jackson of Wellesley. Hello there. Hello, Jody. Hey there. Um, One minor observation as I look into this story. It's called the Great Railroad Strike of 1877. Great name. Straightforward. You know what it is. <laughs> the, the Great Upheaval uh, is like pretty could be like, anything. Could yeah. be anything. That's like, wow, you're going to call this the Great Upheaval? Um, and then and we'll, t- we'll, we'll get into it. But, you know, the, the, this is also related to what's sometimes referred to as the Long Depression, which mm-hmm. is compared to the Great Depression. And obviously we had the So it, as historians, do you – it just fe- seems to me like obviously you don't know what's coming down the line in the future. But calling – a railroad strike in 1877, the great upheaval. feels like it's taking a very, very big name off the table and assigning it to something. Very optimistic. Yeah. And also kind of harkens back to calling World War One the Great War, right. uh, not knowing that an even mm. greater and worse one was just around the corner. Yeah. 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 yeah but I mean... Uh, I just like the idea of whoever called this the Great Upheaval being like, yeah, 100 years from now, people will clearly know when I say the Great Upheaval, they'll be like, oh, yeah, the railroad strike of 1877. That actually would be a, a fun and total waste of time thing to do would be to like go to a historian's conference and be like, what was the Great Upheaval? And then see how many different answers you get. <laughs> uh, anyway. 
here we are. Railroad strike. It was significant. That's why we're doing an episode about it. Um, and lots of really interesting, uh, you know, details here and tells us a lot about the era, including, and I guess maybe we should start here with just, you know, the railroadification of this country, which has, um, which undergirds this whole story in terms of the speed at which this happened. But, um, it's kind of incredible, um, the rise of rails in, in the United States at this era. It certainly is. Like, we talked about this a couple episodes back when we were talking about aviation and the Wright brothers and just how, in like a 66 year period, they were going from flying planes to like landing on the moon. But when you think about the railroads in 1830, it's like 23 miles of track. Less than 100 years later, it's like a quarter of a million miles of track. So there's virtually any place you want to get to in at least along the, the East Coast up into the Midwest is is possible um, as far as as far as the West Coast in some circumstances as well. I mean, the railroad is everywhere. Um, so I think we completely underestimate just how much travel is accelerating along the rail lines and all of the different cities and places that are popping up because of that I mean it's just connected to so much the trains are like the artery or the veins of the country that's right and you add on top of that the telegraph system in the United States and suddenly at this point in the 19th century you have a country that truly is knitted together it's connected in a way it simply had not been previously and what that does to your sense of national identity to shared projects like this railroad strike. I mean, you get this railroad hmm. strike in part because people in West Virginia can communicate with people yeah. in Michigan and Missouri and Maine. And so you have this way in which the connectivity of the nation is reflected in, in social movements and in labor strikes. Yeah, that's like the most fascinating thing about this story in many ways is just the very thing that... Uh, the speed at which it connect, you know, connected people and caused all these economic inequalities um, was also the very thing that allowed for solidarity across different regions mm-hmm, in a way mm-hmm. that maybe hadn't hadn't existed before, along with the media element uh, um, as well. I was I was curious when the Golden Spike was. Uh, that was 1869, just a few years before this, but that's the one that connected. We should do an episode about the Golden Spike that connected, that finally connected uh, East and West railroads and created a transcontinental railroad. But yeah, for laying the conditions here, there's connectivity. Mm-hmm. across the country and then obviously the speed at which this industry is growing and this industry that needs labor is growing and whenever you have that you generally have exploitation do we have any sense of why it starts in martinsburg and what really is at stake and 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 whether that continues to be what's what's going on in in other cities as the, as the strike spreads Well, a pretty straightforward cause of the strike in Martinsburg is a 10% pay cut. Um, And this was particularly devastating because it comes like four years into a catastrophic economic depression in the United States, Um, one of the most consequential economic downturns that the U.S has ever faced. This um, is the long depression. If we got to got to stick with our overblown. <laughs> Although in this case, Although in this case it was the, the longest economic contraction in US history and also like it's one of the conditions for the end of reconstruction mm-hmm. for the election of yeah. 1976 for this major railroad strike. There was no social safety net. So a 10% pay cut there's no you're not going to make that money up anywhere else. And you've already been trying to piece things together little by little. Um, you go through waves of unemployment and now you're going to get a pay cut on top of that. It just really was at that point 
too much to bear. And so the workers go on strike. Yeah. And at that point, 10% is not nothing, right? All the ma- all the money that they bring in matters because it's, it's still not a great wage and it's still really hard work. And so a pay cut really feels like, on top of the fact that there are no protections, um, it really feels like a dig. Yeah. Uh, one thing about the long depression, I mean, there are lots of ways to measure a depression and decide when it starts and when it ends. And, and length is not the only measurement. There's depth as well. But for what it's worth, it lasted about 65 months. And the Great Depression in, in the 30s was 45 months. I mean, uh. you know, so this is really an mm-hmm. intractable, a brutal, uh, ongoing economic conditions. Um, so w- another thing that comes up in a lot of these stories is, you know, we have these local skirmishes. Uh, they don't really get settled at the local level. I mean, here in Martinsburg, like the mayor tried to bring the hammer down on the striking workers. But because, as I said before, you know, there was a little solidarity from the town itself. The local police weren't able to interfere. The mayor turns to the governor. The governor tries to send in the National Guard. And the National Guard is basically like, we're we're railroad workers. Like, we have solidarity here. We're not really (laughs) going to be part of this standoff. Um, And that's when federal troops intervene and President Hayes sends in federal troops. And I don't know, to my mind, often when that happens, it's more accelerant than anything. Yeah, the the federal troops that are brought in, though, I mean, they are brought in to essentially run the railroads that the workers won't do. But they don't get very far. I mean, in the process of trying to take over this railroad, you know, there are standoffs. I think two people get killed. Um, It's really hard to get these trains working because they get sabotaged. They're harassed all along their routes. And at the end of the day, like only one train reaches its destination. So these, you know, strikers were super effective in making sure that they were at a standstill and unable to do any work that was necessary, even when they brought in uh, federal troops. And there's a real solidarity that's spreading throughout mm-hmm. the um, railroad workers across the United States. And so you have the folks in Martinsburg who are keeping trains from going. But even when those trains go, as Kelly was saying, then you have people the next town over. Then you have people in Chicago. Then you have people elsewhere who are joining in this strike and making it impossible for Um, the railroads to move. And as we've been talking about, they were the arteries of the American economy. So this isn't just shutting down railroads. This has massive economic consequences. And it's worth noting, too, that these federal troops that are coming in, these are federal troops that had spent the last decade um, protecting Black civil rights in the South. Mm -hmm. And now they're protecting the rights of capital. And that's what they're going to be doing uh, for the rest of the 19th century Mm -hmm. is uh, being sent out by presidents and and, uh, National Guard figures will be sent out as well in order to protect corporations, railroads and the like. Yeah. Uh, In Lebanon, Pennsylvania, a National Guard company mutinied uh, and when they were asked to to stand on the side of Capitol, as you just said, in Reading, uh, a mob tore up tracks and derailed cars and set fires. There were fires in Pittsburgh, uh, and it you know goes on throughout July. Um, the other element, though, that we should layer in here is that you know you have this uprising at the grassroots level among workers. It appears as if there is either a lack of leadership, um, mm. or that the kind of leadership around um, what were called fraternal organizations for a lot of these, you know, workers um, 
isn't really on their side as part of this. And that, I think, is in part why this strike peters out or doesn't really continue its momentum is because there isn't that that leadership layer that that, that comes in to pick it up but yeah and part of that's because they don't have a union right? like, mm-hmm. i mean unions don't come to a little bit later than the way that they're able to formalize and, and mobilize but they could have i think they could have been much more um effective had they had a union and a way to sort of strategize across towns across states um to be able to get some of their demands met And you're going to start seeing these national mass membership unions emerging in this era, organizations like the Knights of Labor, organizations like the International Workers in the World. Like in the in the decades that follow, Mm -hmm. you start to see unionization happening at a mass scale. And it's happening precisely because of things like the great upheaval. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And of course, there were also questions here around political lines and religious lines. So a lot of um, the leadership and a lot of the sort of middle and upper class were worried about the fact that, you know, the Paris Commune had happened not that long earlier and had sort of pushed for aggressive strikes. And there was question of, oh, is this organized communist insurrection? Um, And then, as we discussed in our last episode, one of the big through lines here is obviously um, nativism, Catholicism, Mm -hmm. immigration, and the relationship between particularly, you know, the influx of Catholic groups and organized labor. And for a while, mm-hmm. there was like hesitancy to to join that. I think there was like um, the Catholic Church had like forbidden joining secret organizations. Um, and so there were like questions around there. But then over the course of this era, you get things like the Knights of Labor and you get mm-hmm. other groups that are sort of like these religious and these labor lines start to start to blur and you start to find solidarity among among those groups. What's crazy is that there's over 100,000 people participating in this great railroad strike. So if you can imagine if there was solidarity, if there was leadership at the top to sort of guide these hundreds of thousands of people, you know, I don't know, we might get laws changed quicker. We might have a completely different landscape with that leadership. But really, you know, the divisions... As you just said, the divisions are what lead to its demise. You can't sustain that um, over a long period of time without the the leadership. And we should also note there is a a law that does change after this great upheaval, after the strike. Um, And that is in 1878, Congress passes the Posse Comitatus Law. Um, And what that does is it says, okay, you can't actually use federal troops to do domestic (laughs) law enforcement. This is something that has come up a few times in recent years. Um, Mm -hmm. But this is why you also see the rise of groups like the Pinkertons and these private armies and law enforcement groups that are hired by corporations in order to put down strikes. Um, You'll still see National Guard, you'll still see local police officers, but you're also going to see these private organizations that are putting down strikes throughout the rest of the 19th Hmm. and early 20th century. And a lot of those private organizations would come into conflict with, to Kelly's point, you know, more organized labor. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. as we see, you know, this as a maybe a first attempt at solidarity across different regions and solidarity across a huge industry and sort of, you know, the first hints of a mass strike, a general strike. We do see more concerted and successful efforts, I would say, at that over the coming over the coming years. So this is an interesting uh, spark to all of that for sure. Um, All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. The Great Upheaval. 
any historian did it live up to its name (laughs) i'm gonna give it a i'm gonna say i can't tell whether it's great or upheaval that i want to change but i still feel like one of those two needs to change i think we just Uh, need to stick to railroad strike and leave it at that (laughs) yeah do what it says there you go this podcast it does what it says on the box i like name that just says what it is so yes okay we can go with that um all right nicole hammer thanks to you as always (laughs) thanks jody and kelly carter jackson thanks to you my pleasure It is, as you may have heard, an election year. But do you feel like you have a lot of choices? Here are the new candidates, same as the old candidates. How did we get here again? The fact is our democracy is broken. We can all feel it and there's data to back it up too. A Princeton University study found that public opinion has near zero impact on what laws are passed. You know what does have an impact though? Money. You can call it lobbying, you can call it super PAC spending, you can call it corruption. But luckily, there are things we can do right now to fix this broken system. This podcast is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition, a group that's banding together to make our democracy better. We're working with Represent Us, the largest grassroots organization fighting to end corruption city by city and state by state. You can join the movement, too. Go to represent.us slash podcast to find out more. Radiotopia. Radiotopia.